0: I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in at First John chapter 3, verse 11. Let's pray. Lord, God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for Christ. I thank you for your word. We know that it is sufficient, God. We know that um, it's what changes our lives. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's what causes us to walk in your statutes, what trains us in righteousness, which convicts us of our sin. Um, it's not me. It's not the preacher. It's not the words I say. Um, I can... I can unpack a verse, I can exegete a text, but it 's only that whenever your word 's being preached, your word and not my thoughts, the Holy Spirit comes behind it, and it he changes our hearts, He causes us to want to have affections for Christ, so Lord, I, I confess that I know that your word is sufficient and nothing else, so I pray that you would use your word this morning to change my heart, God, that you would Help me want to walk with Christ more. And each person here, every wife that needs to hear how to love their husband better, every stay-at-home mom who needs the the mercy and grace of Christ to make it through another week with their children, every dad that needs to plug into their children's lives, or husband that needs to love their wife well, or every college student that has this new um, year coming up where they need to love their, their roommate well, God, I pray that your word would show us what it means to love one another. We thank you, Father, and we ask that you would come now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 John is written to believers by um, a pastor, uh, someone who's been alive a long time, the only disciple that wasn't killed, the only disciple that got to live um, a long life. Um, he was, they tried to kill him, but he didn't die. And he's writing this at an, at an old age, writing this letter to a, a group of believers and this group of believers really needs to hear you can know that you are believers they were struggling with their assurance of salvation so we see over in in first john 5 13 i'm going to point this to point this out to you almost every week hopefully um first john five thirteen. Uh, these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life so these believers were struggling with assurance and he's giving them throughout this letter in the first half of the letter um, three tests to be able to test themselves to know that they're in the faith. One's righteousness, one is love, one is truth. Righteousness is if you have ongoing willful sin in your life, hey, that's a test that you can look at your life and say, I I might not be in the faith. Or another one is love. If there's a lack of love for you, for other people, then that's a test. Um, Those who have been regenerated, those who have been saved by Jesus because of the love shown to them should have a love that overflows to other people. If there isn't that love for other people, then you can say, well, maybe I don't know Jesus. And that's a good test. And then the third test is truth. There is um, a need for people who have been saved by Christ to be able to actually know Jesus and know some things about Jesus. There's, There's doctrinal things that we should know about Jesus. And if we don't know those things, that's also good evidence. And John's saying, these three tests, you, you don't just grab one of them and, and see. well, okay, I got that one, so I'm good. Actually, um, all three of them are necessary to look at. You, when, you, when you look at one, then you look at the other. You don't just say, well, I'm just going to see a righteousness, and if I don't see sin, then I'm okay. You need to also look and see if you're loving. You also need to see if you um, know some doctrine about Jesus. And so he's, he's done that in the first half of the book. And then in 228 through really about uh, 3-3, he talks to them. That's kind of the midpoint where he he, he stops that line of thinking and he just wants to remind them that they're children of God. You are the children of God. This is an unbelievable truth and lets them know what it means to be a child of God. And now he's going back into that same line of thinking, giving them those three tests again here in the second half of the book. But here's the deal. What he's doing this time um, in these three tests is he's um, using a, a comparison or contrasting those. Um, now he said righteousness versus unrighteousness versus sin, love versus hate. And then the third one will be truth versus error. So we're, we're looking at that second one, truth versus hate today. And we're, we're asking ourselves, are we in the faith? We're gonna, we're gonna see some remarks on love here today. Um, and I'm calling this the necessity of love part two. Because we've really already done this before when, he, when John unpacked it in the first half. Well, he did that in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Um, and I'm not going to re-preach that sermon at all. But if you want to go to iTunes, you can download it. But in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, we're going to see some of the same themes and some of the same ideas that we're going to see here in 3.11 through 18. And so really, this is just a continuation of that other sermon. Um, the necessity of love. And I say necessity because... The second test is true. If there is not love, then you don't know Jesus. It's necessary in your life that you be a loving person. The necessity of love. Now, um, Francis Schaeffer, he said this when he's talking about love. I actually quoted this last time in The Necessity of Love. I want to revisit it. There's going to be some, some overlap because, again, this is almost the exact same ideas that he's saying before. Um, Only with this mark, he's talking about love, only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. So if you're a believer, the world will know that you're a Christian if you're loving. They won't know it. That's what he's saying. That's his argument. Now, um, before we get into this, I just want to kind of preface this. It's absolutely necessary that you know Jesus if you're going to be a loving person. So all these things that I'm going to say that, that should be in your life, um, whether you should uh, have love in your life, that you don't want to be a murderer, and you'll see what I mean by that, um, that... We should always have love and action that manifests itself in action. All these things are only possible by the gospel of Christ. So it's necessary that you know the gospel. It's necessary that you believe in the gospel. It's necessary that Jesus is your Savior. That's kind of the the beginning point for us as we look at these things um, in love. And I'm going to talk about the gospel and why it's awesome at the the end of the sermon. But I just want you to know that the gospel is absolutely necessary for us to be loving people. All right, so in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter, uh, chapter one, I'm sorry in Second Peter chapter one verse ten, Peter tells us this. If I can find it, I know it's like one over, and Bible drill did pretty well, but it's been a while. All right, Second Peter chapter one verse ten. This is what it says. Therefore, brothers, so Peter's telling you, if you're a Christian, you need to know what uh, you need to know. What I'm saying here, this is very important for you as a Christian to hear what I'm saying. This is very important. Second Peter, uh, chapter one verse ten says. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So he's telling us in, in chapter 1, verse 10, to make sure you need to know that you are in the faith. It's absolutely certain if you're a Christian that you, you know that you're in the faith. It's, it's important. It's very important. So as we're looking at this, um, and we're looking at these tests, Peter's telling us and even John's telling us, it's, it's crucial that you know you're in the faith. So as we look at this test of love, Um, you need to know it's it's important that you hear these words and not just kind of say, yeah, I need to be loving, I get that, okay. What's next? Um, I'm good at that. But you need to know that you're in the faith. So hear these these words and really let them soak into your mind and ask yourself, okay, am I in the faith? Am I not in the faith? He's not just telling us um, to be loving people. John's not just saying, you should be loving Instead, he's saying, love is a way that you can know whether you are a Christian or not. All right, because here's here's the problem. Anyone can claim to be loving, just according to how you define it. Anyone can claim that. Are you a loving person? Yeah, I'm a loving person. I mean, what's love? Well, love is, and then you define it out, and then you can say, see, I'm loving. So it's really easy to say that you're loving because you have the ability just to define that yourself. But... Here, John is going to define it for us of what loving is and what it should look like. So as we look at this, you, don't come with your presuppositions or pre um, ideas about what love is. Let him define it for you. And then you can say, all right, am I love? A- am I loving? Am I a loving person? All right, let's look at this in verse 11. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love, and I'm expecting something different, that we should love one another. I'm expecting him to say, this is the message that you'd heard from the beginning, that Jesus died for you on the cross, and if you put your faith in Jesus, then you can be saved, because he's talking about the message of the gospel. But he says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, I'm gonna read the whole thing now, that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Alright, so verse 11 says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the beginning, John is saying, this is the message that I told you. So whenever we tell the gospel to someone that Jesus died for them on the cross, that He came to to save them from their sins, it should be no foreign issue or no foreign thing that that they should also be loving. Whenever we, we communicate to someone the gospel... and and they become a Christian a few weeks in, a few months in, a a few years in, they shouldn't just all of a sudden have a revelation that says, oh, Jesus died for me, and I'm supposed to be a loving person. He's saying, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And not only that, that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. All right, so let me... If you don't know anything about who Cain is, that's a brand new name to you. We're going to flip over really fast to the very first book of the Bible, um, Genesis, and I'm just going to really quickly tell you who that was. Cain um, uh, was the first set, Cain and Abel were the first set of brothers to ever live. Adam and Eve were the first m- woman and man that were created, and they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Look at Genesis 4, and it says this, um, now Adam and Eve, now Adam knew his, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And she again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. So we can already see like many years fast forward right there. In the course of time. So all of a sudden, he's born, he's a man. Just really fast forward there. And it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Because he worked the ground. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And it says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? Meaning, if you, would, if you would give an offering with the right heart and attitude to God, then you'll be accepted by me. But you're not given a right... You, you, instead, you don't love me. You, you're not of me, is what he says. And we'll, we'll have some, we have some uh, proof from that in 1 John, that he never was of the Lord, that Cain was actually of the devil from the beginning. That, that's what he's going to tell us in 1 John. Um, so, Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face... If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then it says... If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said, where's Cain and uh, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, this is a very, very common, famous line, um, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. All right, so we'll stop there. So the very first two brothers that lived, one killed the other out of out of envy, out of jealousy. And so he, he's, John's telling us not to be like Cain in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, and here it is, who was of the evil one who was of the evil one so from the beginning Cain was of the devil and a murder and murdered his brother why did he murder him because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous now I want you to look at verse 15 for me really fast and it says everyone who hates his brother, is a murderer. Now, he's clearly making a a connection to what he just told us about Cain and Abel. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here's the first remark on love is this. And number one is that love is commanded to us. Look at the second half of 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It's a command to us. So the first remark on love is that love is commanded. And if we don't love, then we are a murderer. We're a murderer. And you're like, well, how can I be a murderer if I'm not loving? That doesn't connect with me. Well, <clears throat> let me show you one other place in Matthew. In Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, Jesus helps us see what it means that if we have anger in our heart, if we hate someone, that why we're a murderer. In, in 521, it says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but... Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you... So he's saying, that's true, you should not murder. However, let me put something on top of that you should also understand. Um, In 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, maybe some of your translations say, raka. I know you've probably never called somebody raka, but it just means a fool. Um, will be liable to the hell of fire. So we see here that if you're angry and you have an anger towards someone, then it means you hate them. And if you hate them, then you are a murderer. And so that's what he's telling us. So if you uh, hate people, then you're a murderer. So that's the first little thing we, we need to know. As believers, we're commanded to love each other and not be murderers. So here's the question for us: as we're as we're starting to go through this, are we, if if we're not really murderers, but we hate? And how do we hate? We have anger towards people. Are there are there times where anger dominates your personality? Anger dominates your your speech towards people. It, are you characterized more by anger and hatred towards those that God has put around you more than love? If that's who you are, more then how are you any different, in essence, from Cain? You are, in essence, like Cain. Do we murder in our hearts because we hate or because we have a lack of love love for other people? Um, James Boyce was talking about this verse here, about Cain and Abel and, and and relating it to Christ. And he says, Cain's murder of Abel is a perfect contrast to Christ. Cain hated his brother and killed him, Christ um, gave of him himself and died for his brother. So we're to be more like Christ than we are to be more like Cain. And if we have hatred towards our brothers, we're more like Cain than we are like Christ. Now, in verse 13, it tells us, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, I've just been trying to Dive into this verse this whole week. Now, why is he saying that? Why is he telling us that? Um, John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, uses very similar language like this in John 15. He's actually quoting Jesus. So if we look at John 15, verse 18, this is what he says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So when it tells us, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Well, why would it hate me? If I'm being loving towards them, why would it be hate, hateful back to me? I don't understand. Well, John fifteen eighteen gives us a little bit better understanding. He says that the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So if we're going to people and we're... We're really loving them. We're not just serving them with words, but we're also coming alongside that and telling them the most loving thing that we can tell them, which is that they should know Christ, the exclusivity of Jesus, the, the only way that you can receive um, eternal life, the only way that you can be in a right relationship with God is only through Christ. It's not just Jesus and, and whatever way you want, but it's only by Jesus which is the most loving thing that we can do, is tell them that it's only by Christ that you can be saved. Well, sometimes you can be viewed as very unloving for telling people that. That's not very loving. How can you tell me that if I don't put my faith in Jesus, that I'm going to go to hell? That's very unloving for you to tell me that. And the result is this. Verse 13. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Because they've hated Jesus. Jesus claimed that he was the only way to Christ. I mean, I'm sorry, (laughs) the only way to God, the only way to be forgiven. And they hated him for it. Not everyone but some people did. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Now, that doesn't mean that we should actually try to go out and try to be hated. And as they hate us, say, I'm not surprised, because, you know, the the Bible tells me you're supposed to hate me. So it's no big surprise to me that you hate me. We're not we're not looking for hatred towards us. We're actually wanting to serve. We're actually wanting to be as loving as possible towards them. But we never change the message. We never change the truth. That Jesus is the only way. And in and, and Corinthians, it tells us that when we go and we, we proclaim the truth of the gospel, that to some people, we're the aroma of life. Whenever they hear the gospel, they think, that is beautiful. That is exactly what I believe. I want that. Help me, help me know Christ. You are, you are speaking life into me. And it tells us that we are the aroma of life. And at the same time, at the same set of people that when people hear that, they can, they can hate what we're saying and that it tells us that we are the aroma of death to them. One, a sweet fragrance. The other, a stench of death with the same message. Two people are hearing it. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. However, whenever we see that they hate us, we don't take pleasure in that. It pains us deeply and we still um, go to them as much as we possibly can seeking to serve them. And then 14 it says, And we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Now, This is an interesting way to say it, because usually kind of the normal way of of living is we pass from life to death. We're alive right now, one day we'll die, and we've passed from life to death. But he's saying it the opposite way. We've passed from death to life. And so for someone who doesn't understand spiritual things, someone who doesn't understand the Bible or Jesus or whatever, eternal life, that sounds very, you know, what, what the word are you saying? Well, this exact phrase, passed from death to life, John used in his gospel. So I want to read it to you in John 5, 24, just so you can hear how he said it one time, and now what he's talking about. And it's, it's no big mystery, as I've said. These verses are, are pretty straightforward. Um, but let me read this to you, because he used the exact same phrase. Now This is Jesus talking to us now. John saying, I remember when Jesus said we've passed from death to life. I'm going to use that as I write this letter. Look what he says here in five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words, or hears my word, and believes Him who sent me, that's God the Father, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you won't be judged and condemned. But you've passed, here it is, from death to life. You've passed from death to life. So, um, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. And then he uses this, this this is an amazing sentence, and it should scare us all. Um, Give us great pause to look at our lives and just say, not just use our own definition, yeah, I'm loving because I've decided that I love them and them and them. Well, you know, maybe I don't love them, but I do love them, so I am a loving person. Look at this. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's a pretty scary verse. Here's the second point. Here's the second remark on love. Love for the brothers. And and that extends out, not not just in the family of God. Clearly the Bible, the whole of the scriptures will tell us um, that we're not just commanded to love our brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, that we should absolutely be loving to anyone, whether they know Christ or not. But love for the brothers, and I'm just saying the brothers because that's just the textual words there as he says in 14. Love for the brothers gives evidence of regeneration. You're not loving So that you can become saved. It's not like, okay, I believe in Jesus. And so now you've told me I got to be loving. So I'm going to do these loving things. And as I do these loving things, that's going to earn my salvation for me. So at the end, I know that I've done these deeds. I know that I've done these works. And since I've done them, now I'm a Christian. Thank goodness I know it's saying if you're a loving person, it's giving evidence. We're never earning our salvation by being loving, but we're showing that if Christ has shown his love into us, and now we're shining his love into the other people, that gives evidence that his love has actually been shown into our hearts in the first place. So love gives evidence of regeneration. Regeneration is just a huge theological word, and that just means that you're born again, that you have been born again, that... There has been a time where the beauty of the gospel, the truth of Jesus has come into your heart and it's awakened your mind, it's awakened your affections to be able to understand Christ and you say, I want that. Yes, and you put your faith in Christ and you become a Christian. And if that has happened, then you are regenerated. Right, here's the question for you. You're marching through high school, you're marching through college, you're mar- marching through your marriage. We're all busy we all have a lot of things going on. Um, whenever you're starting school this year, if you're a high school student or a college student, or parents, your kids are going back and you're meeting other parents or, or whatever, um, there's going to be many, many, many times, and, and and for those of you that are married, this is every day. There's many, many times and many, many opportunities that we can give evidence of love. You're sitting across from someone in class um, You should be loving to them. You should want to serve them. You should try to meet their needs. Your your spouse, every day you have an opportunity to be loving towards them. Love for the brothers gives evidence of regeneration. So over the next week, over the next month, I want you to just kind of make mental notes and challenges for yourself. Um... Am I being loving to the brothers and sisters around me? Because that's going to help me understand and know. I'm going to have assurance. I'm giving evidence of regeneration. And just look back over the last month, even the last month we just had. Is there a pattern of love for the brothers and people around me? Or is there not a pattern? Is there more of a pattern of hatred and murder and and being like Cain? Because if there is, I just want to say... Whoever does not love abides in death. You, you can't not be loving and be a Christian. You have to be loving. It's, it's one of the most challenging, easy to understand, difficult to think to think about, and very hard to do an honest assessment on ourselves. But it's so straightforward in Scripture. We must be loving people. Regenerated people are loving people. Now, this is just a side note um, that I want to kind of concentrate on. But I think it's, it's quick and I think it's really good. All right, It's really good. Because it's, it's, it's going to hopefully, and it has for me, enhance your love of the gospel and enhance your worship of Jesus. Okay, Now, don't miss this. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Whoever does not abide... Whoever does not love abides in death. Um, James Boyce says that this is an indirect statement on the doctrine of original sin. Indirect statement on the doctrine of original sin. Meaning, look at what the language that he's using. We know that we have passed from death to life. If you aren't loving, then you abide in death. So, the key there is the word death. Um, whenever you're born, you are born dead. There, there isn't a sense where you're born with a clean slate and you have this, this magical ability to be able to choose. You have this ability to choose right and wrong, but it's not that as soon as you choose wrong, then you're spiritually dead. It's that you are born spiritually dead. From the very beginning, you are born spiritually dead. This is what he says. Men do not start at some type of neutral state and then choose sin. Instead, they start as sinners and willingly choose to sin continually in everything they think and do that 's a bad, bad news right there for us all. Bad news, but there 's always good news and I just want to say this is huge to understand for us in the gospel um, if we i 'm not quoting james Boyce anymore i 'm just quoting myself here so i, I don 't want to like say something that 's not as profound and awesome as James Boyce, and you think that I don't want to like make you think that he said it. I said this, and so if it stinks, you know, it's, it wasn't James' voice. He's an awesome commentator. I recommend him highly. Um, anyway, this is huge for us to be able to understand the gospel, that we don't start in some kind of neutral state. Instead, we, we start dead spiritually. All right, If we understand the fact that we have been born dead spiritually and that we will not in our, in our own mind and not in our own um, will choose Christ willingly, but unless God himself breaks through, and regenerates us and lets us see the beauty of the gospel and that we choose him and then we can start be loving we can start being loving if we don't see that then we're going to think that um my salvation yeah was because of god on the cross but i also played a little bit of part in it i mean i was able to see things i'm smart enough i got it all down so yeah he he died on the cross for me and gave me salvation but i also saw it so My salvation is also a little bit because of me, because I got it all together. And if you do that, it diminishes the worship of Jesus. If you realize that you're born dead spiritually, and there was nothing inside of you that wanted to to see Him, there was nothing inside of you that wanted to seek Him, Romans 3, Um, that all of your thoughts were only evil continually all the time, Genesis 6, 5. But you see that God did all the work necessary to regenerate your heart, to see Christ, to be able to start giving you capacities to be able to love. Well, that is amazing news, that He would be that good to us, that gloriously merciful to us. And that awakens my heart to want to worship Him more. If we see this and understand this fully, then the gospel of Jesus should amaze us even more and cause us to worship God more. He says that we abide, we were abiding in death. There was nothing in us that wanted to worship God. And He has supernaturally Planted in us, spiritual life, that made us alive. And now we can, we can worship Him because of His goodness to us. That makes it more, actually, all about Him. That's great news. And that, that makes it so that we shouldn't want some of the worship for ourselves. We shouldn't think that we're somehow um, worthy of some, of, these, of some worship because we had it together. But God in His greatness did it all for us. And when He did it all for us, He deserves all the worship. So it should awaken our hearts and affections more to worship him. All right, so he says here that we abide from, we are abiding in death, and that um, if we don't love, that we still abide in death. Now, he's going to go to 3.16, and I know we all know John 3.16, but we should all do well to memorize 1 John 3.16, because this is a great, great verse. He says, by this we know love. So here's the third thing about love. The best example of love to us is Jesus. The best example, I'll move out of your way so you write, your way. The best example of love to us is Jesus. Look what it says. By this we know love. So without Jesus dying on the cross, without him coming to um, regenerate us or, or to save us by pu- shedding his blood on the cross, we would not know what love is. There would be no example for us to look at and say, that's love. There's pictures in the Old Testament, but without this, this great Messiah coming and shedding His blood for His people, we would not know what love is. And so He tells us, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is the best example for us of love. So if we want to know what love is, if you want to know... How to be loving. I just invite you to start in Matthew and just work your way in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just watch Jesus. Just, just notice Jesus as he tirelessly heals people, as he tirelessly serves people, as he goes and talks to people and gives and speaks words of life into them. Just, just do a, a good six month survey of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and watch Jesus. See what he does. And, and don't just look at his life. But look at his his death on the cross as he displays the greatest act of love for us. Jesus is the best example for us. Um, here we can see one of the greatest contrasts between Cain and Christ. Boyce says, Cain showed, his, Cain showed his hate by killing righteous Abel. Jesus revealed his love by sacrificing his own life for those... Foul creatures of sin he chose to make his brothers. So Cain killed his brother because of hate. Jesus saves his brothers because of love. The, just, John is really wanting us to see the difference between Cain and Christ here. So the best example that we have is Jesus. So the answer is, and everything is always about, Jesus. Alright, so now I want to use 16 and, and build my last point here with 16, 17, and 18. Um, by this, we know that he laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But, this is where I turn from just teaching some theology, and I start going to, you know, in, in, in the South we say, nah, now he's just meddling. Now he's just meddling. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit in your junk a little bit here. I'm kind of getting a little personal, all right? I'm getting a little bit personal. Um, let me write something real fast. I don't want to remember to say this. It just came in my head. All right, um... By this we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, and he's going to define love for us. Here it goes. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to that. There's no like big mystery there. It's actually, in your Bible, it should have a little question mark behind it. You may want to put a little exclamation point there behind it as well, because he's, he's kind of shouting that question out to you, saying, hello, wake up. All right, so, um, and let me just say, punctuation is not in the Greek. That's just, commentators say that, and I agree with them. All right. Um, Yet closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. All right, so here's the fourth thing, and this is just the most obvious, but I think the most challenging for us. The fourth remark on love is love always manifests itself in action. Love always manifests itself in action love must be tangible it is not just in word or in talk we can just talk all day long i love i love i love and and we can convince ourselves that we love and if all we ever do is talk but don't do anything then we are not loving the bible is very clear there little children let us not just love in word and talk but indeed and in truth indeed we should be loving people if we have our the world's goods and sees his brother in need that we close our heart against him how is god's love abiding in you All right, Um, this means that we should be meeting the material needs of others. I know that some of you are in college, and you're eating ramen noodles, and um, you're broke. I mean, I I have been there where you're just broke as anything, and you don't have much, and the food, like, I, I lived at, I went to Charleston Southern, and, uh, it was amazing, like a big contrast. Because whenever I was at USC, I got to go to what they call the roost, and I got to just eat unlimited food, and it was really good. Um, and I would just, I would just stuff my face full of food. I mean, I would just, it, I ate so much. I even, you know, I gained a lot of weight doing that, which was awesome but then i transferred because god called me in the ministry and i went to charleston southern and charleston southern might as well have served you dirt on a plate at the time it was just the worst food ever and i um this is good now actually i recommend going there but at the time it was not that great and um i lost a lot of weight i mean i would honestly go there sometimes and just look at the food and chicketti they just had a bunch of leftover chicken and spaghetti and just kind of threw it all together here's your chicketti. i'm like oh chicketti again just give me some rice And I would get a plate of rice, and I would go over to the salad bar, and I wanted some flavor, so I'd put some ranch dressing on the rice, and I'd go over to the, Uh, honestly, I'd just sit there and eat my ranch dressing rice, and I'd be like, oh, this is so gross. Um, And I know what it's like to be poor. Listen, and go back into the room, microwave the ramen noodles, and just pray that that's going to fill you up. Um, I know what it's like to not have things, but here's the truth. Um, Even though all that was true, and I was broke in college, um, comparatively, even uh, among other college students and, and really the rest of the world, it says here: If anyone has the world's goods, we we have the world's goods. I know that you think you don't have money, but you do. Honestly, you have stuff. There's plenty of stuff. We have storage buildings made where we can put more of our stuff. I mean, is that? I don't know if that's just America. There may be some other places in the world, but I'm sure that if you go to third world countries, there's not these massive storage units where we can store more stuff. We have stuff. And it's just saying, and and listen, I'm not saying it's bad to have stuff. The Bible here is not saying it's bad to have stuff. You should have stuff. If you, you, you have kids, you, know, you are overflowing with stuff. And everything that's kid related can't come in small, it's, it's massive. You can't go on a trip without buying a, a trailer just to be able to go somewhere. Um, but it's not bad to have stuff. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. So it's okay to have stuff just as long as stuff doesn't own you. But having stuff is not wrong. But when you have it, and you see someone in need, and you don't meet their need, that's whenever it's sin. That's whenever it's wrong. It's If you have things, God has blessed you. Praise God that you have them. Just hold things loosely. Open your heart, and let God open your hands. Praise God that you have things. You should be very thankful for that, but you should also say, God has entrusted me with these things to be able to meet the needs of others and we know from a parable in, the, in Matthew um, where he says, if you basically um, i 've given you these certain things, and if I see that you're a good steward of these things then i 'm going to entrust more to you it's not some kind of like get rich." quick scheme that jesus is, is preaching there it's saying do you want to be blessed by god if i see you blessing other people then i'm going to bless you with more stuff so that you can bless more people that's why he gives us things so be thankful that you have things it means that god trusts you and has entrusted you to be able to bless the hearts of other people so praise god that you have things but just don't close your heart against people that have things because if you do John asked this emphatic rhetorical question. How does God's love abide in you? So we should be desiring to meet the material needs of others. And if we're not, if we're not desiring to do that, then verse 18 says that we're just loving with our words. We're just defining love on our own terms and calling ourselves loving because we decided that that's loving. And that's loving in talk. That's loving in words, but he's telling us that we should love in deeds. Now, this is where I'm going to kind of just point into a little bit. I'm going to say it. I'm going to hit in there. I'm going to meddle for a second. I'm going to pull right back. All right? That's it. So don't get upset. Think of, if you could, a name or two that you're actually doing that for. That's not your wife or husband. That's not your child or son or daughter or, you know, an immediate person that's in your family, but outside of that. Because, I mean, honestly, it's really easy to say, of course I'm loving. I'm meeting the needs of my wife and, or my husband and, and my children. Those are givens. I mean, those are like, clearly we're supposed to be doing those. But let's just say that you could think of one other person, two other people that you could be doing that for. Maybe write their name down. Maybe if you're not doing it and you want to do it, write their name down to challenge yourself with it. Maybe if there isn't somebody you can pray about, who God would bring in your life that you could be loving towards by needing their needs. Now I want to be really, really careful here because I want to. There's a very, very little common. Um, there's a very, very little common phrase that was kind of s- started by this guy named Saint Francis of Assisi, um, and this is what he said. Um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words and that's just not good it's not good at all um, the reason why is because if we just say fud you got me all right i'm going to write that person down and i'm going to find out what their needs are and i'm going to go there and i'm going to i'm going to meet their needs um, i'm going to hand them the stuff i'm going to give them the stuff and i'm going to say you know here's the stuff i saw your need i want to give it to you and then you're just kind of preaching the gospel with your life and when necessary use words but they didn't ask anything so i'm not going to use any words i'm just going to let them see that i'm they're going to think i'm a great guy they're going to think I'm a great guy or a great girl because I gave them some stuff. Awesome. Um, that's not really what we're talking about here, okay? When we serve, when we serve people, when we meet people's needs, we don't just meet their need, feel good about ourselves, and run out and say, "Whoo! thank goodness they didn't ask me about Jesus and salvation and all that kind of stuff. I'm out, and, and thank goodness they didn't have to talk about it. The point, the point of meeting people's needs, is to know them so that you can love them, befriend them, have a real, real love relationship with them, because you need to meet their greatest need, which they may not know yet, their spiritual need for Jesus. We meet physical needs because they need Jesus. If you all remember, Ben, whenever he talked about going to Africa, um, the first couple times Ben preached back in January, I, I just suggest that you go download that sermon from Ben in January. Um, it's from from Peter. He said that the first couple times that he went to Africa, what impressed upon him the most is the physical need of people. They it just devastates me their physical need, and so all I did was concentrate on that physical need. I just wanted to meet those physical needs so bad. I saw that they lived in slums. I saw that they were always hungry, and. He said it wasn't until the third time that he kind of took a little bit of a step back and he said, wait a second. <laughs> if all I do is meet that, I haven't done anything. The greatest need I need to meet is their spiritual need for Jesus. If, if, if they live 70 years or 30 years and they don't have all their, their needs met here and they die at a young age or they, they don't get to eat a whole lot and they have a a, a a horrible life and they die and don't know Jesus, well then they live eternally in hell. But... What's more important? Forever or meeting this need in 70 years? And he said, I had to take a step back. And whenever I realized, well, they may never get out of this situation. So instead of fretting and getting so upset about, about meeting their, their physical needs, I should want to tell them about Jesus first because that's more important. That's more long lasting and that's going to be far more important in an eternity scheme. So here, whenever you're meeting the needs of people, it's absolutely great, but it should never terminate on that. Never. Because if all you do is meet their needs now, you've just made them comfortable on their way to hell. We're not here to air-condition sinners until they go to hell. That's just not going to do anything. So as we meet their needs, we have to tell them about Jesus. We have to. That is their greatest need. So here, let me conclude. Um, and, and I think for us as a church, and, I just, and I'm just speaking for myself, and maybe you can, may, this is my greatest deficiency in this, and if perhaps this is yours, you can, you can understand. But my greatest deficiency in being a loving person, my greatest foe is indifference. Um, I want to conclude with why not love, why don 't we love, and this is actually my exact conclusion from necessity of love, part one, however long ago that was. Um, these are the reasons why I think we don 't necessarily love the first four are practical reasons, and the next two the last two are theological reasons. all right This is why I think we don 't. Show love to people. Number one, it's it's inconvenient. We have a time schedule that we have to meet. And listen, America is very time-oriented. You can show up late to some places and other places, no big deal. But here, you show up five minutes late... And, and I know this in my own heart. I'm irate. I shouldn't be that way, but we are. You know, we're very time, and so I, I don't have time. It's inconvenient for me to go serve over there because I've got these things that I have to do and I've got these things I want to do, and so it's just inconvenient for me. Um, and this is the one I think that really measures on me the most is lack of feeling, no concern, indifference. I just see myself going through the day and then I kind of reflect back on my day and I saw, well, there was a lot of opportunities to love. Where were the feelings of love in my heart? Why did I seem to be indifferent to meeting that need and that need? God, don't let me be like that. Why, why am I just indifferent? It's like there's no capacity sometimes for love at all. That's where I am sometimes. Um, another one's just selfishness. We're just selfish. We're more concerned about ourselves than others. And the next one is uninterested. This isn't just indifference. This is just, this isn't like, where's my where's my love? It's, I know where my love is and it's not for them and I don't care. Just absolutely uninterested. And that's, I guess, like selfishness. Now here's the next two. And I think these are actually pretty pretty crucial here. Um, the theological reasons of my, why we might not love. Um, number one is a lack of belief that it will work. A lack of, of belief in the bigness of God, that He would use you and your acts of love towards people to save sinners. How were you saved? More than likely, someone showed love towards you in some ways. If He saved you, He's a big God. So don't have a little faith in Jesus that he can't save people and that he can't can't use you to be loving towards other people. And the next one is just not regenerate. Not regenerate. Perhaps you don't love because you don't know Jesus. Here's why the gospel is awesome. It's because we can't love people without Jesus loving us. We can't love people without him Loving us and then us being able to love other people, because He's loved us first, and He died for us while we were far from Him, and He brought us near. The gospel is the only way that we will be able to start loving other people. That's why the gospel is awesome. Because He loved you, you are now free, free to love other people. That's just beautiful. I want to close with a Martin Lloyd Jones quote, and then we'll we'll go into our time of worship. Um, I'm sorry, we're going to our time of Lord's Supper and then we'll worship through song. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Herein we know love, and this is how you get the whole of the doctrine of the atonement. In these few words, he laid down his life for us. Beloved friends, let us meditate on these things. Let us look at them. Let us realize the nature of love and the implication of claiming that the love of God is in us. Let us understand that if we claim that we have God's love in us, what are the actual implications of that? Let's think about that, he says. And then let us proceed to prove that we have it by loving one another. Not in word, not in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Jesus, um, it's just so clear from your scriptures that as we have been loved by Jesus, that we are to love other people. That our love shouldn't just look like words. Our love shouldn't just be um, just emotions, although those are fine. But it also manifests itself in action. It gives evidence that we have been loved by you, that we love other people. And so, Lord, I pray for us. I pray for myself. I can just I can think of places where I'm not loving and I don't want to be that way, Lord. Um, I thank you, Lord, that I do see and that here my friends do see places as they look at their life that they, they do have love. And so we can know, Lord, we can know that we are in the faith. We can know that we have received eternal life. But, God, I pray that you would give us more opportunities to see love in our life, more opportunities to see that so that we can know that we have eternal life because we all struggle with assurance sometimes. We see this in the scriptures that this isn't just a 21st century occurrence, but it was something that happened in the first century and every century in between that we all as Christians need to have assurance and we question and we need to know. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at our lives, that it would be, um, it would be evidenced by a, a great love for other people because you've loved us. The greatest act of love is the cross. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, God, as we are fasting this month, getting rid of things that might be idols in our life for a month to focus on you as we fast from one thing and feast on Jesus. I pray that we remember the cross. I pray that we remember that that it is the greatest act of love and that because of the cross that we have been forgiven and that we come now to take the Lord's Supper to rejoice in the salvation that we've been given. God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.